This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. This week's sermon is by Pastor Will Chester. My name is Will Chester. I'm the youth pastor here at Church of the Resurrection, and uh, I wanted to start this morning by telling you a little story. I am so miserable. I am so miserable. Those were the words that came out of my mouth. And I didn't say them as I just said them, but I screamed them, I shouted them into the cold dawn air in the middle of the Wisconsin wilderness. Now, people talk about losing their minds, and I was there. It was not a figure of speech. I had lost it. So let me tell you how I got there. I was 19, and I was working at a summer camp called Honey Rock up in northern Wisconsin. And I was participating in a 56-mile all-night canoe race called the Hodag Challenge. So my team had left at dusk around 9 p.m., and I was convinced that not only were we going to win the race, but we were going to set the record for the fastest time ever. I was so convinced, in fact, that before the race, when we went to a gas station to load up on supplies, and I was looking at the aisle full of, kind of nuts and, and dried fruits and cliff bars and power bars, I didn't want to spend too much money. And so I only bought two power bars for the entire night. And here's what I was thinking. The previous record was 12 and a half hours. And so convinced that my team was going to beat the record, I said, I bet we'll finish in 12 hours even. And so I'd eat one power bar four hours in, and I'd eat a second power bar eight hours in, and then at 12 hours, we would finish the race and be showered with delicious donuts from this cheering crowd, amazed at our accomplishment. So what happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. The night did not go as planned. Three hours in, around midnight, the fog was so dense that I could not see five feet in front of my face. I couldn't see the rocks before we'd hit them, banging into them. And then we spent, the, the water levels were so low because of the drought that summer that we spent as much time out of our boat as we spent in our boat, dragging our canoe over rocks in the cold, cold water. And so at dawn, nine hours into the race, when we should have been just about finishing, or at least coming to the last leg, we were only halfway through. My power bars, gone. My confidence, gone. My sanity, gone. I was exhausted. I was sleep deprived. I was hungry. I was utterly demoralized. And this is what did it. I realized that even if I wanted to quit, which I did. I did want to quit. Even if I wanted to quit, I couldn't because we were miles from the nearest road. I had to paddle across this mile-long lake. There was nothing else I could do. I was miserable, and so I kicked, and I screamed, and I, and I threw my canoe over, and I despaired. Now, the rest of the story I'll have to save for another time because we did finish the race. And no, we did not come even close to setting the record, but I, and we didn't even get donuts at the end, but I was given this green T-shirt that says Hodag Conqueror that I wear proudly to this day. But here's my point. 
My point is, I was not ready for a long night. I was not ready for a long night. I didn't have enough food. I didn't have the right clothes. I didn't have the right mindset. I was not prepared for things to go in a way other than what I'd planned. And I share that story this morning because that is what our gospel passage is all about. This strange parable about the end times and about lamps and these ten virgins, it's about a long night. It's about waiting. It's about things not going as planned. And the question that Jesus poses for us this morning is this, what does it look like to be ready for a long night? What does it look like to be ready for a long night? And it's good timing, right? Because a long night is what we're living in. COVID-19 has been a long night. And this morning, we're back 100% on live stream, and I know that's, that's discouraging to many of us. It feels like we're back in April, even though we hope that this will, will only be for, for a short time. This election cycle has been a long night. It was a long week in terms of American politics. And some of you are living through a personal long night, a long illness, a long grief, a long conflict. And our faith is tested in long nights like these. We can get so caught up in wishing things were back to normal that we lose sight of what's really important. We put our lives on pause until some future date, whenever it comes. We can forget who we're waiting for, and we can try to make things happen in our own power. We can grow discouraged and just give up, try something else. And like us, the disciples that Jesus is talking to, his, his Jewish listeners and followers, they were living through their own long night of Roman occupation. This summer, we did this sermon series on the book of Jeremiah. We talked about the exile in 586 BC. Well, here, 600 years later, the Jews still don't have full control of their own land. They're still waiting. They're still longing for an end to their exile. And the scary reality that we read in Matthew's Gospel is that in the midst of all of this waiting and longing for the Messiah, when the Messiah actually showed up, many did not recognize him. And so at the beginning of, of this section where, where Jesus is talking to his disciples called the Olivet Discourse, at the beginning of this, he said, right before it, he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I longed to gather you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you, will, you were not willing. You weren't ready. Despite all this waiting and longing, you weren't ready. And so what does it look like to be ready even when the night is long? That's our question. Let's back up and, and look at this passage. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like these 10 virgins, who today we might call bridesmaids. Their job is to, to stand there in the night with their oil lamps or their torches and welcome the bridegroom into the great banquet at the end of the wedding feast. And even in Middle Eastern culture uh, today, weddings often work like this, where there's some kind of ceremony and then, and then the bridal party would go and visit these different homes in the village before the wedding festivities culminate in this big party at the end of the night, in the middle of the night. 
And so that's what's, that's what's going on. The bridesmaids are there to light the way for the big hurrah at the end of the night. And Jesus says, five of them were wise and five were foolish. And a similar pattern like we see in the book of Proverbs in its discussion of, of wisdom and folly, the wise and the foolish, they don't look that different from each other at the beginning. They're both invited to be in the wedding. They're both ready to receive the bridegroom at the beginning of the night. They're both looking forward to the party. So what's the key difference? The key difference is the wise were ready to wait. They packed extra oil with them. The foolish weren't ready. They didn't bring any extra oil. They weren't ready for a long night. And the critical words come in verse 5. The bridegroom was delayed. So finally, at midnight, all the bridesmaids had fallen asleep. But somebody yells, here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. And all ten snap into action. But the foolish realize the situation that they're in. And they ask the wise, hey, let us borrow some of your oil. Let us share. And the wise say, we can't share with you. If we share with you, there won't be enough for both of us. And if there's not enough for both of us, then there's not going to be enough for the bridegroom. So the foolish go off to buy more oil. And meanwhile, the welcome party stays. These five wise bridesmaids, they're half the size of what they were supposed to be, half the brightness of what was intended. And at this point in the parable, you know, I, I think it's good to ask, who do you feel badly for? Because I know for me, when I read this parable, I, I just, I see myself in the foolish bridesmaids because I'm a procrastinator. I, I wait way too long into December to buy Christmas gifts or to think about what I want to buy. I'm a procrastinator. Do we have any procrastinators at home? But who does this parable want us to feel badly for? Who are we supposed to think of here? I mean, have you ever heard that expression? You had one job. You had one job. As in, what was asked of you was not that hard. How did you mess it up? That's a big deal. It says a lot to mess that up. It wouldn't be uncommon for the, the bridegroom to be delayed, to be late. It's not like they have phones and they can text, hey, run a little late, I'm gonna be there in five minutes. They don't have watches. I mean, it's a normal thing to be late. And so it's a big deal that they weren't prepared for that. I mean, this would be like your maid of honor calling you the day of your wedding and saying, hey, yeah, so I haven't bought the dress yet, and I'm at the mall, and I see one that looks similar. It's a similar color. It would be a big deal for her to get that wrong. It would be like your best man calling you and saying, hey, listen, um, I didn't buy my plane tickets yet, and uh, they're all sold out, so I don't know. Is there a different day that we could do this? It says a lot to get this wrong. It says a lot about, about what they think about the bridegroom, and we don't know what they were thinking, but we just know that they weren't thinking about him. And so that's why, that's why what happens next makes sense. The foolish show up late at the party, and they ask to be let in, and it's the bridegroom who answers the door. I mean, the last person that they want to see and he says to them, I don't know you, and shuts the door. And at first that sounds harsh, but, but it's, it's not just a pronouncement that he's expressing. I mean, he's just expressing a fact. These bridesmaids, like, they had one job. They were supposed to, to be here for him, and they weren't. 
They weren't ready. And so he's, he's right to say, I don't know you. I don't, I don't think you know me. Their minds and their hearts were somewhere else. Meanwhile, the, the wise were ready. In verse 10, we read, The bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. So what does it look like to be ready for a long night, or for what could be a long night? I want to share with you this morning three characteristics of a church that is ready for a long night. And these are three things that will serve us even in this particular long night of COVID-19 that we're living through right now. And so here we go. The first is that a ready church, a ready church is a worshiping church. Now, I know that sounds obvious, but it's, it's easy to forget, especially when worship is inconvenient. And right now, worship is inconvenient. If you've got kids that are home all day, it's hard to find space and time to pray. It's hard to worship right now. It's inconvenient. It's hard to sign up to come to these in-person services. It's hard to feel connected through a live stream. We get that. It's difficult. This is a difficult season. But if we lose sight, if we stop worshiping, then we'll lose sight of what we're supposed to be doing right now, who we're waiting for. The wise bridesmaids, they were focused on the groom from beginning to end. They fell asleep, but as soon as he was there, they were ready to go. They snapped into action. And that's what worship does. It refocuses us week after week, day after day, meal after meal, as we say grace. Worship refocuses us on who we're waiting for. It is easy to be distracted right now. It is easy to be distracted by our circumstances. And that's why I'm grateful that our scriptures were written to people who were living through a long night. And so in the letter to the Hebrews, the writer says, look to Jesus. In your suffering, in your difficulties, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Worship is about looking to Jesus. That's what we're doing right now. We're looking to Jesus, saying, Jesus, give me a word for the season that we're in. We say the creed week after week. We believe in Jesus Christ, who will come again to judge the living and the dead. We say that week after week to remind ourselves that judgment is not ultimately up to us. We have a role to play in justice. We have a role to play in love and mercy. But ultimately, we're waiting for Jesus to come and bring justice to the earth. We're looking forward to him, and we're awaiting him, and we're putting our hopes on him, not in our circumstances. A ready church is a worshiping church. Secondly, a ready church is an encouraging church. So earlier this week, as I was working on this sermon, I reached out to a friend of mine in the church who served in the armed forces, and I asked him, what is military readiness look like? Like, how do you guys do that? How do you stay ready for action at any given moment? 
In his branch of the military, military readiness means this. It means that within 48 hours of receiving an order, they're ready to go to war. Within 48 hours. And so when I asked him, how do you do this? He told me some things that, that you might expect. He talked about physical readiness, all the drills that they do, so that they're ready to go, so that their skills are sharp. He told me about doctor's appointments and dentist visits. He said, because the last thing you want when you're going to war is a toothache. He talked about equipment readiness and, you know, making sure that the trucks are filled with gas and that the, the oil changes have been done recently. But then he said something that surprised me. He said, we could not maintain readiness without encouragement. We could not maintain readiness without a team. If it was just up to you to stay ready, to stay at your post, you couldn't do it. But when you have a team, when you have all of these people staying ready together, encouraging one another, peers encouraging peers, commanders encouraging their subordinates, subordinates encouraging their commanders, when you have that kind of system happening, you're able to maintain readiness. Readiness to go at a moment's notice. And that reminded me of the scripture that we read this morning from the letter, Paul's letter to the, to the Thessalonians, chapter 4, which deals with the problem of a long night. See, the Thessalonians, they're grieving. They're watching church members of theirs dying before seeing the things that they hoped for. And Paul is encouraging them, saying, don't worry, we do not grieve as those with no hope. We believe in the resurrection. We believe that those church members who have fallen asleep, they will be raised to life again. They will greet Jesus with us. We will always be with the Lord. And then in verse 18, he says this, now encourage one another with those words. Encourage one another with those words. Take this word of the Lord that I'm giving you and encourage one another with it. A church that's ready for a long night is an encouraging church. It's a church that reminds one another of the hope that we have in Jesus, revealed to us in the scriptures. And so sometimes all this takes is a subtle shift in our thinking. So, so that as you listen to your friends grieve and complain and lament, you're not just listening, but you're, you're asking the Lord. You're saying, Lord, do you have a word for them? Is there a word of encouragement that you would have me speak to them? And if we're going to stay ready through this long night of COVID-19, we need this. We need to be involved in one another's lives, reminding each other, this is not the end. Jesus is coming. Stay ready. Stay ready. Thirdly, a, a ready church is a discipling church. A ready church is a discipling church. It's a church that is always thinking about the next generation, whether that's our children or, or leaders or just younger believers or just younger people. We're always thinking about the next generation because the strength of the church is not in all of the glory of what she is now, but it's in her ability to replicate herself through the generations, to pass the faith on. So this year's Baseball World Series, it featured two teams, right? Featured the LA Dodgers, one of the most expensive teams in baseball. And they're led by one of the most expensive players in baseball, Mookie Betts. They ended up winning, of course. Now the other team, the Tampa Bay Rays, 
they are one of the least expensive teams in baseball. And so it makes sense how the Dodgers got to the World Series, but how did the Rays get to the World Series? Here's why. The Rays invested in the next generation. The Rays, they don't have any superstars, but they have the best farm system in baseball. Better than any other team, they invest in the next generation of younger players. And their success becomes because year after year after year, they're investing in younger players. A ready church, one that's built for a long night, has to be about the work of discipleship. And, and you want to, just a brief definition of discipleship, here it is. Discipleship is taking what you've been given by the Lord and passing it on to somebody else. It can be informal, like, like just getting together or reaching out to somebody when you're thinking of them, or it can be more formal. You know, setting up a, a regular meeting, something like that. But often we make discipleship far more complicated than it really has to be. Discipleship, it just means following Jesus in your own life and then doing that with somebody else, doing that with your kid, thinking through tough issues with them, praying with them, reading scriptures with them, reaching out to somebody younger than you and encouraging them, reaching out to somebody and having them over to your house for dinner. I mean, I know that I am so grateful in my life for this, this group of men that gets together regularly to eat meals and to watch movies and to, to share what we're reading with one another. And in this particular group, I am far and away the youngest person there. I mean, almost everybody is in their 50s and 60s. And I am so grateful that they invite me into those spaces. They're intentional. And the discipleship that happens, it's pretty informal. As they share about their lives, I learn through their successes. And I learn through their failures, and I learn what it's like to be a godly man. And I apply those insights into my own life with my own children. I'm learning how to be a discipler by being discipled. It doesn't take a program, but it takes intentionality. A ready church has to be thinking about the next generation. And so right now, if you're looking for something to do, if you're looking for a work of the Lord to be a part of, it could be just as simple as inviting some folks who are younger than you or who are younger than you in the faith, inviting them over to your home. And just by your presence, by your conversation, by your prayers, you will be discipling them. And if that grows into something more formal, then praise God. That is a wonderful thing. We need more of that. But a ready church has to be about the next generation. And parents, let me just give you just a, a short encouragement as you're discipling your children. Obviously, COVID-19 has been a very difficult season for our families, for our teenagers. But I don't know if you've seen this. One of the surprising pieces of news that's come out is by this researcher, Gene Twenge, who says that, that teenagers' mental health is actually better now in the pandemic than it was before the pandemic. It's surprising. We didn't expect that. And, and this is her reason why. She said teenagers are getting more sleep and they're spending more time with their families. Now, if you had, a year ago, if you had asked our teenagers, hey, what would make you happier in life? They probably would not have said more sleep and more time with my family. Those two things they probably would not have said. 
but that's what they needed. So parents, be encouraged. Your kids need you. They need you to teach them how to pass the faith on to their children. And that's what you're modeling for them right now. So don't, don't stop the patient work of discipling your kids. Keep praying with them. Keep talking with them about the Lord. Keep reading scripture with them. They need you. And this pandemic, for all of its hardships, is giving you more space and time to do those things than you might ever have again. Use the time. These are three things that mark a church that's ready for a long night, a worshiping church, an encouraging church, and a discipling church. That's, what's, that's what it's going to take for us to be ready through the long night of COVID-19. That's what it takes for us to be ready as a church through a long night of cultural confusion about things that matter most. But take heart. You are not alone. That's the good news. The church for the last 2,000 years has been living through a long night awaiting Christ's return. For 2,000 years, she's seen empires rise and fall. She's been persecuted and she's become powerful and she's been persecuted and become powerful all over again. And in all of these things, the church has learned to be content. So take heart. Be ready, because no one knows the day or the hour. He might be early, or he might be late, but the bridegroom is always faithful. The bridegroom is coming. He sustains us, and he is always faithful, even through the long night. So in the words of Jude, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.